Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we have conversations at the intersection of excellence in the arts and the Christian faith. I'm your host today, Rich Chrisman, and today I have the pleasure of opening up a slightly new kind of discussion, that of big questions, or core essential questions to the world at the intersection of creativity, beauty, goodness, and truth. Today's big question is, why should we still read the classics? Nice. Yeah. To humbly try and tackle this question, I have uh, a whole team. It's like as big as the original Avengers squad, I think. <laughs> um, I have Cody Schweikert. Hey, what's up? What's up? I got Nate Mancini. Hello. Uh, Megan Mancini. Hi. And Lauren Lowen. Hello. So all... Uh, one, two, three, four, five... Um, all five of us have been on a four from three sixty episode in the past, so you may recognize some some voices. But it's I don't think we've all been here together. No, no. So very excited about that. Ooh. Yeah, the Avengers have assembled. Wow. Um, is the Avengers a classic? No, obviously. I uh, I mean, obviously not. The, the comic, possibly. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's. Uh, <laughs> Let's uh, get started. So uh, we're going to discuss, none of us have uh, come together on this this line of questioning formally. So um, I, I think the best place for us to start off is how we define that term. So the question we're discussing today is, why should we still read the classics? Let's just start with when you hear the term the classics, what does that mean to you? I can start... Uh... So to me, in my mind, I automatically think of uh, novels that are in the canon, you know, and most of the titles I think of are from uh, the 20th century, you know, and I know there's more than that. But uh, I, I thought a little quote that I read might be helpful to to kick off the conversation. Um, the New York Times uh, defined the literary canon as an elite group of scholars and critics who embraced a work of art and sent it aloft to some deifying realm and so wow. that to me Ooh. i know yeah that makes it sound like gross to me i'm like oh that's <laughs> uppity and pretentious and annoying um like but big, big literature has put its stamp of approval on it <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah like like elitist but um i think there's like a less pretentious annoying way to approach the topic which is like a classic has to be transcendent it has to transcend time and space so like uh, like it, it has to be timeless, like deal with themes that like, no matter who you are, where you are, when you are, uh, it feels relevant to you. So like a novel that I'll talk about later is like, was written in Africa, like almost a hundred years ago or 75 years ago. Um, but you read it and you're like, oh, that's just a human experience. So for me, that's what I think about, uh, kind of literary novel and transcends time and space. Right. And, it, and, and that transcendence might be innate in the work, like it's, it's dealing with enduring themes or it has that quality to it. But then there's also that element of people actually are reading it and studying it over a long period of time that like it keeps coming back that different cultures over time find it to be beautiful. Um, so I think that's an interesting piece of it, right? Because people will often try to add to the the canon and i think that's totally valid right that like the canon we there might be works that we have forgotten or like didn't realize really ought to have been been classics but even those like need to kind of be accepted and studied over time to really be considered classics in an enduring sense i think yeah 
I, Cody, I thought it was interesting that you pulled out stuff from the 20th century because my initial definition was anything written before 1900. Oh, yeah. But then as I start, because I, I tend to like a lot of like 19th century literature, but as I started thinking about it more, I was like, well, we have to include Lewis and Tolkien. So it's probably like anything older than my parents, I guess. That's but funny. <laughs> that same idea of transcending like cultures and time, I think is key. I think another element for my personal definition of a classic would also have to include its influence. So Mm -hmm. um, something that is genre defining. Yeah. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to hear that. So I'd like to kind of even like maybe put together from what we just said right now, like kind of like we had everyone kind of pulled out some, some core aspects to the definition, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so what did we kind of, say we have things that are transcendent of time and and place of culture what are, what other metrics did we pull out i think we could say literary works or place because often things like shakespeare a lot of the classics when you think about it it's like the stuff your english teacher handed you in high school that you didn't want then but you do want as a grown up mm-hmm. and that can be plays or books yeah that's um, a great way to put it that's a great way to put it Lauren, what did you remind me? What was the thing you just said again? Um, it's influence. So right. something being genre defining, not necessarily like the first work in a genre, but the most right, right, influential. Right. And we, influential on that. On that genre brand. or on yeah. just a, like literature, yeah, culture. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Love that. I'm afraid, uh, I just real quick, Rich, the, um, sometimes I make the sin of dipping into football uh, on the forefront festival podcast the forefront 360 here but really quickly like the hall of flame the hall of fame players the hall of flame hall of flame hall of fame players are the best in the business the best in history and the metric they use is is this play can you tell the story of the nfl without including this player that's great and if you you can't then that would be like a hall of famer you know and in this case maybe Maybe that's helpful. We'll forgive the mm. the football reference for that. That was really good. <laughs> Do we have to okay. forgive Star Wars references? If we have um, to forgive football? That is the canon. We will try. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is Star Wars old enough to be classic? Well, I'm going to throw in my definition here, which um, oh, I lied a little bit because I did talk to Lauren about this definition in advance. But my definition of a classic is actually, I, I think we can call something a classic as as soon as the generation that it was made in and made for has kind of passed into history. So I, so I would like died, not necessarily that just, this is my personal definition, but I would say that we can begin to call things that were published in like the 1970s and 1980s classics at this point, because now the, the people who were writing those works you know, like I'm, I'm thinking of particular novels in my head, but like there are novels that were published in 70s and 80s that we now consider like historically significant yeah. because that is now almost, you know, 50 plus years ago. Can you give an example or two as someone who's, since I know you are an English teacher, as someone who's not a high school English teacher, that would just be helpful. Yeah. So, um, so one that kind of sticks out to me is, let me just double check on the year that this was published, but, um. The, the person that jumps to mind at first is that when I studied poetry in college, we spent a lot of time looking at the poetry of Charles Bukowski, who wrote in the 1980s. Okay. Um, 
But all, that's like what I was thinking of specifically. Tony Morrison as well. Yeah. As, uh, I was just beloved. going to say Tony Morrison. The, yeah. yeah, the bluest eye. Or um, I haven't read Tony Morrison. Yeah, but um, but also the fact that like, and this is not the 1980s, but like, so not exactly what I'm saying. But like, there are numerous books that we teach in high school that are considered classics that were written in like the 50s and 60s, like um, The Catcher in the Rye and mm-hmm. things like that. So um, like 1984, that was in the 80s, right? Right, 1984. Yeah. That's a joke. Yeah, sorry. I no. think like I think Harry Potter will, if it's not already considered a classic, will be considered a classic at some yeah. point in the near future. Yeah, I do. I do think that the millennials need to get a little bit older before it becomes historical. Yes, but right I'm, now I'm it's yeah. just cringy. <laughs> oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. To the oh, youth, yeah. To the youths. A quick note, just the uh, so we'll stick with the literary world, but I think it's okay to veer into like a, a mention a play or like an epic poem. I think that's yeah, right. uh, allowed. What do you think, Rich? Still oh, absolutely. I mean, literary. Two, I would two call other, that literature. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Two other things that just like pop to my mind, like other books that we teach in school. Both of these books are taught in American high schools. The Color Purple by Alice Walker was written in 1982. And The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan was published in 1989. I love The Joy Luck mm-hmm. Club. Yeah. So like there are now like numerous books that were that were written in that frame that we we kind of consider canon Mm -hmm. so um so anyway we we landed on transcendent uh influential literary works that have that have stood the test of time they are beautiful across cultures and times and they've influenced the medium i think that's a great metric and they've got to be just a little bit old like a beautiful Uh, steak you gotta let it rest yeah you gotta let (laughs) the steak rest for a minute yeah old enough to to be president at very least um Let let her cook yeah. So, um, let's just, let's go. So now, now we know what the classics are. We're all talking about the same thing. Let's answer the question and then whoever's brave enough to start that. And then we'll, we'll kind of see what the conversation takes us from there. So why should we still read the classics? I did some show prep, so I'll speak quickly and, and see where we go from here. So as I was thinking about this, it's like, uh, the obvious answer that comes to mind is it's good to look back. It's good to spend time with people that came before us. There's old wisdom and those people have lived fuller lives, especially for younger people. You know, they haven't lived full lives yet. And so you can learn a lot from, from older people and you can do that through stories and books and um, you can get to know uh, people that way. But even more than just like, oh, you learn, you don't make the same mistakes if you listen to older people. Uh, that one's kind of obvious, but even deeper than that, I think when we when we look back so much in Christianity today, at least, I don't know if this is necessarily biblical entirely, but it seems like there's this adverse relationship we have to the past in the sense that like, oh, you're a new creation, you know, like don't look back, look ahead. And mm-hmm. of course, there's a lot of truth in that in the right place, but there's also a time to look back, I think, and to reflect and to... Uh, I think when we're doing that, when we're reading classics, we feel connected to people and we realize that, you know, Shakespeare, a guy who lived centuries ago, had, the you know, the with all the difference in the language and the, the tone and all of that, the themes are exactly the same, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And I think when we feel connected to people that lived a long time ago and stories that happened a long time ago, were told a long time ago, we get a better sense that like God is outside of time. This life is a vapor. And eternity is kind of looming right around the corner. And uh, it kind of puts like a temporal perspective on, um, I think, when you're doing it properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And there's that whole like Hebrews 11 passage, you know, looking back to all the great, you know, people of scripture who had mm-hmm. faith over redemptive history. So there's clearly that sense of like, remember what has come before in scripture. Yeah. I think the idea of like truth that transcend culture, but that are placed in a different culture from our own can be really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Even at, you know, I love reading like Dickens and Jane Austen, especially. And there are some things in their culture that are very similar to ours, but it's just different enough. And you can see how they're, working inside their culture, but also not just surrendering to it. And they're even, both of them will take out biblical truth and and basically like smacking the culture over the head in a good way. And mm-hmm. so it just gives you a little humility and shows you things you can learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the uh, someone long ago coined this, this image, but the idea that uh, books are like windows where you can, you know, go through this, you know, of course, you're playing on the rectangular shape of a book, right? But like you can step through this window into another place in time and experience something that's impossible for you to experience in the present. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that the one thing that classics have really done for me in my personal life is remind me how quickly the world changes. Mm-hmm. Because if you read, you know, an, a number of books from different you know, even just decades in the 20th century, let alone different centuries, um, the world looks surprisingly different in many ways. And like what people consider socially acceptable, how people speak, um, how they view the power structures in the world, things like that change very rapidly. And to me, it's actually to some degree comforting. I I think it, it, um, cultivates wisdom i think to realize that the moment that we are living in at any given time is not forever it's many (laughs) things are not permanent Mm -hmm. and so the fact that we think like oh the world is blank you know i think the reality is you know if we're unless we're talking about eternal facets of god right the world is blank right now you know and and really whatever you're talking about is probably going to be quite different, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And I think, I just think the classics, uh, that's one of the benefits that I've taken from reading those and spending time like living in those worlds. Mm. Yeah. That reminded me of this idea that like, you know, a hundred years from now we'll probably be gone, but like we'll be remembered by like maybe our grandchildren. Right. Or, uh, but what about 200 years from now, 300 years from now? everyone gets forgotten, right? So if if we're still talking about a guy named Shakespeare at like 500 years after he died, um, the good news is the classics are good. That's my point is just like, you should read the classics because they're good. You know, like so, something that's not like- for a reason. Yeah, yeah like yeah. something that's not really special doesn't stick around so long. So that's the best argument. Maybe it's just the classics are good, so you should enjoy them. And that was the point that I was going to make an answer to this question that- the reason you should read the classics is, or the reason I would read the classes, classics is the reason why I would read anything. And that is to be entertained and to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Like there is a place in my life for reading things and doing things because they're good for me because I'll learn something. But at the end of a, like a normal weekday, if I'm going to p- pick up a book, I want to, I want to be entertained by it. And mm-hmm. so I will put down a classic if it is not entertaining me. Like, I remember having to read To the Lighthouse in high school, 
and hating every moment of reading that stupid book. <laughs> Virginia Woolf, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would not pick that book back up because there are so many other books that I'm sure I would enjoy reading more. Mm-hmm. Even if there was something that Virginia could teach me, that's some, something that I would learn about the human condition by reading that book. I just don't want to do it. Well, luckily, many, many books have been written that have... <laughs> taught similar lessons so if yes. virginia wasn't for you that time there's probably another one that tackles that same lesson that yeah. maybe could arrest you a little more so i guess my point is there there is an abundance of excellent literature in this world and there's an abundance of excellent literature that i will also like yeah so why not read something that i'm enjoying reading amen yeah well, i my uh response will go right off of that really well i think because what i kind of prepared to think about is the fact that why should anyone read the classics? I, I, I kind of push back a little bit on what you said because I see that many, many, many books are published. Like tremendous amount of books are actually published each year, mm-hmm. like way more than, than you'd think, right? Because so few kind of sift to the top of what we see. Um, and then historically, almost countless books have been published, right? And even those that are very popular in the moment may not survive the passage of time. And I remember there are specific books that I'm not trying to put down right now, but there are specific books that I remember being very popular 10 or 15 years ago that I was like, this is the next classic. This is it. And <laughs> now, like, I, no one cares. Like, it, those, that book has very much faded into, you know, non-existence. And I think that the, I think that we also in the present moment can't really decide what will be a classic or not. Um, even, you know, because I, I just think that history has shown that things you, like I kind of said earlier, I think the generation now can't decide what is transcendent because we have to see if the generation in the future finds it so. You know what yeah. I mean? I would agree with that. We can't decide if something's transcendent exactly. until, it until it transcends. Exactly. And so I would say that the why should we read the classics? I think the fact that the reason why the classics have existed through that that decay of time is because they have what English teachers call true merit. So the idea is there is some thing that this book does, this story or the way that the story is written or something that um, has outshone everything that existed at the same time as it. And I think that the more that I, I spend time with classics, particularly the ancients, like things like the Odyssey or um, the Iliad, or while Shakespeare is far from ancient, Shakespeare, um, you know, things like that, the more time I spend with those things, the older I get. It's like uncovering a buried temple complex like we found the top of the pyramid and we're like whoa look at this crazy ancient pyramid and the the more we deep the deeper we dig the more is under there you know what i mean yeah and that that's how i feel about especially the ancients i think that's a good reason to reread to the ones that you you know to lauren's point the ones that you enjoy mm-hmm. because yeah. i found on rereading like pride and prejudice or emma I catch things that I didn't mm-hmm. see before, but it's still fun at the same time. I love revisiting media that I've experienced before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anything that's really, really not craftily as in slyly, but anything that is made with craft, anything that's craftily done, you cannot experience it all in one go. Right. That, like, like anything that's, is, you know, it, it's, 
I, I would, I think it, I would, uh, that would be a red flag for me if there was a book that people were like, this book is incredible. And then you go back and read it a second time and then yeah. nothing new no, nothing reveals itself to you. It's yeah. like, okay, but yeah, there's also, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but of course, um, Karen Swallow prior in her book on reading well, which I know a couple of you have delved into deeply, um, talks a lot about the cultivation of virtue. And so that's, of course, a, a real benefit to reading the classics is, sure. is because a lot of them have an emphasis on, you know, showing you a particular virtue or a particular vice and, you know, how to avoid that through story. So um, like she says, literature embodies virtue first by offering images of virtue in action and second by offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue which is not the same as actual practice, of course, but is nonetheless a practice by which habits of mind, ways of thinking and perceiving accrue. So like we actually can become more virtuous through like experiencing these tales of virtue, um, which is a really cool, really cool result. Yeah. Just something to kind of jump off on that. I did a book club. It was actually through Forefront like a year ago with On Reading Well. Yeah. And some of the books Karen Swallow Pryor recommends have virtuous characters, and some of them have terrible characters. But what's interesting is, you know, especially if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you don't have to just read books where everybody's behaving perfectly to learn about Jesus. Sometimes books with ter- terrible characters mm-hmm. who repent can teach you about grace, or it can show you from a really concrete story why some of God's rules are in place the way they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where vice can lead. There's only Breaking one. Bad. There's only one human <laughs> character in the a Bible classic. that behaves perfectly, and that's a thrilling <laughs> classic. Fair, indeed. Interestingly, like Karen Swallow Pryor also affirms what Lauren talked about, which is that idea that it's actually good to read stuff you enjoy, <laughs> and like par- partly because it's entertaining, but partly because even the other like positive aspects of literature, like the cultivation of virtue or the fact that we're experiencing these, you know, enduring themes of tr- transcendence, none of that lands as well if we're not actually enjoying it. Yeah. But if we are enjoying it, then we're able to soak in all that um, to a much greater extent. Yeah. To so. my to the point that I was making yeah. earlier, I remember nothing about To the Lighthouse <laughs> except disliking it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all these things go together. Yeah. yeah. That's why it's so great when you get like a close friend recommends something specifically to you. Like uh, a couple weeks ago, Rich sent me a story, I think in the New Yorker by mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King, right? Yep. And uh, I, it's on my list. I'm going to read it. And I know I'm going to read it because I know I'm going to like it because Rich has spent uh, a lot of hours with me and knows what I'm into and has even read some of my own stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it's like, dude, I, I, dude, it's I think so in college. Funny. The reason why I sent that story to you is because it's so dark and kind of <laughs> gross, which is exactly <laughs> what you like. This reminded yeah, me yeah. of Cody. <laughs> Dude, I thought I was just like an awful Christian and then I'm like discovering Flannery O'Connor and there's this whole like aesthetic that is like justifies my yeah, existence. Yeah, Christian Gothic, creative. baby. Yeah, so I'm I'm okay with this. I understand that's my, you know, it's there's a purpose in it. But all that to say, like, I think when I was a little bit younger, I was really determined to like, I trying to force myself to like uh, what I should like, you know, like what did my lit professor say was important? And I'm like, okay, I must enjoy this. And it's okay to work hard to enjoy like a complex text. But I think what you're saying so well, Lauren is like, 
um, there's so much out there that you're never going to get to. So don't waste your time on something that doesn't grab you. I can't tell you how many times I've like read the first three lines of a poem. And because I have a massive book of other poems right at my fingertips, I'm like, skip. And I don't feel guilty anymore. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just swipe left on that one. Keep going. <laughs> Cody just likes to be a Christian in dark mode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I did not know what that says about my reputation I mean, or my status. That's like the entirety of Christianity in the Middle Ages. So you have good company. Yeah, they were all in dark mode. Uh, another oh, thing man. I'll mention is I think uh, reading the, reading the classics increases our attention span, right? Because we're like so often moving from thing to thing, small bits of information, uh, whether that's in the form of like text or photography or whatever, we're kind of flitting from thing to thing. And I think actually delving into the classics, like just reading longer works, reading them slowly, reading them well, like I think that actually helps to form our brains to appreciate that kind of work. Um, And so it kind of works both ways, right? Like it helps us do it and then we do it and we enjoy it more. I would agree. Can you just repeat that, Nate? I was on Instagram. I did, wasn't paying attention to what you said. No. I would cool. agree with that and also add that any reading will have that effect. Like, just read something. Just read yeah. something. Yeah. Read the back of a shampoo bottle. I will say too, it's so it's so, so funny. I've done that. I recently have done or did this research for my uh, high school class where we were at Dickens this year talking about 19th century novels. And one of the kids was like, why are 19th century books so long and dry? And I was like, good question. Like, uh, contrary to Megan, 19th century literature is my least favorite era, personally. So, and I feel because they're quite long, you know what I mean? And I looked up that it's because in the 19th century, um, what we now buy and consume as novels were originally consumed as uh, in periodical form. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. these these novels were, were read in bite-sized chunks <laughs> over the course of years. You know, which is very funny because imagine, like I was talking to my students about this, imagine if you took a TV show like The Crown and watched all of it at once, like no, no pauses, like it would feel so in, in, in gargantuan, like how could I possibly mm-hmm. take all this in? And so it, it is funny that we take a book like Moby Dick or the Brothers Karamazov or something like that and put it all together and be like, here, here it is. But I mean... You're not going to buy little episodes of the book, so it makes logical sense. Yeah. But I mean, it's okay, it's okay to read it over the course of years. I mean, pro- probably not going to be years. Probably going to be you know six months or whatever. But sure, like, yeah. it's okay to like I, I think read a classic you know, well, over longer periods of time and read slowly. And well, speaking of which, Cody, have you finished Lord of the Rings? I am closing in on the end of uh, Two Towers. I, I, exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking about, example. man. Well, yeah. done. It's a long journey. Hey. A long day's journey into night. Another classic. I um only made it through Lord of the Rings by listening to an audiobook. So I can't oh. really say anything. Oh. Yeah. It's a slog, man. They're difficult to read. But anyway, Dude, it's a, it's I've never read them and I feel like I don't need to because the movies are good enough for me. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's it's a master. You should listen to audiobooks at least. One of my until very recently uh, I think it's fair to talk about Lord of the Rings for a second. It's a classic. But I think it until is. until very recently, I um until I understood the beauty of, of Lord of the Rings, which is pretty recent for me, maybe two years or so ago, I, I wore as a badge of honor that I was a Christian that liked the arts who had never read Lord of the Rings. It was like a rebellious thing that I had. Yeah, it's a fun club to be in. It is fun because people, not people act so shocked when you say you've never read Lord of the Rings. 
And then when I say now that I prefer Lord of the Rings to Narnia, people are also super shocked by that. Well, that's dumb. Yeah, let's not. You're, Lauren's gonna punch somebody in the face if yeah. we start talking. You're just about, like yeah. being a Christian in Mordor mode. Yeah, <laughs> <Just like that. laughs> um, wow. So we mentioned the Bible for a second. So the Bible is the most popular and enduring classic by sales and quotability. So mm-hmm. more so other classic. Yeah. So more, uh, you know, classic books. I mean, the Bible is the most quoted text of all time. So um, and referenced and alluded, etc. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. But sometimes we don't even think of the Bible as a classic because we think of it as a religious tome and not something that you could, you know, read for any sort of entertainment value or even for virtue building value. I feel like sometimes we don't even think of it in that manner. Do you guys think that the Bible, you know, uh, although obviously the Bible is more than any other classic we've mentioned, uh, does the Bible belong on that shelf with the other classics? And, and if so, is it, uh, do you, have you ever had an experience reading it in that way? Like you would a Jane Austen text or something like that? I mean, I've had, I've gone through phases of like reading the Bible in different forms. So like most of my twenties was a lot of like study Bible reference hopping, but I don't know, maybe six years ago. So when I was still in my twenties, just to clarify, um, I, I went through a reader's Bible, so it just, and that doesn't have any verses or chapters or anything. Yeah, I like those. And I went through that, like the whole thing, and right now I'm working on a journaling Bible, which does have verses and chapters, but it doesn't have like cross-references. So Mm -hmm. that's not reading it like a novel, but I have found in going through scripture in that way, I can just sit back and see like, oh, just like react to it and not need to worry so much about whether my reaction is like theologically accurate. Right. Or just realize like, I can't believe Paul actually wrote that down or like, that's weird that that happened or this is amazing. Yeah. And just kind of let myself respond. Yeah. I mean, I, I bring this up because I never reading the Bible always felt like a chore until I took a class in at a secular college uh, on the Bible as literature and the first text that we were given was the Robert Alter translation of Genesis, mm. which reads like a, like as if you bought the Odyssey or something like that. Like it, it doesn't look or read like a Bible in the traditional sense. Um, and Robert Alter is is not Christian or Jewish, so he translated it just as a historical piece of literature. Um, and reading Genesis like it's a book. Um, completely opened my eyes to the Bible as a piece of literature. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, since then, I have, by my own choice, for no particular, like, I'm going to do this because it's good for me uh, reason, I've read through n- numerous books of the Bible. I, I mean, this makes it sound trivial, but for fun, you know, mm-hmm. because I see them as beautiful texts. And obviously more than that, but um, so reading Genesis and Exodus in particular as standalone books was was really big for me. I mean, I guess I would I would absolutely affirm that we should read the Bible as literature in the sense that like the Bible is 66 books, many of which have different genres. We have to understand their genre in order to understand that book of the Bible, right? That sort of thing. So I think bringing that literary aspect to scripture is really important. Um, does it belong on the shelf with the classics? 
Well, I think in the sense that like uh, if somebody says, what are like the great books I really ought to know about? What books should I study, you know, to to really understand um, history and culture? And I would say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Read the Bible. <laughs> like it's an imp- it's an important book for you to understand, even if you're not a Christian. Right. Um, but I think I probably wouldn't like if someone was like, Hey, make me a list of the classics. I probably wouldn't immediately put the Bible on that list simply because I don't want to put the pressure on the list to say like, Oh, here's this one. That's like 66 books, all of which is the word of God. And then (laughs) here is, you know, great expectations. It like like puts too many expectations on the other books. Um, some great. So, <laughs> so uh, that, that's that's why I j- it's just different, right? The, the Bible is different, but it also has similar aspects for which we ought to. It certainly to has literary it. merit. Yeah. It does have much literary merit. Yeah, I guess like reading it, reading it through a literary lens, like like you guys were just saying, I think is beneficial. But I would also agree with Nate that it doesn't belong on the same shelf because it's sort of like asking Christians, "Oh, like, oh, what's your favorite book?" Like. You got to, ex- or like what, if you could save one thing in a house fire, what would it be? You just oh, have to take the Bible say, off the table. Yeah. I hate when people <laughs> say like, if you could meet any historical figure and have a dinner with them, who should it be? And then when you're with your Christian friends at summer camp and you're like George Washington and they're like, ha ha, Jesus was the answer. And you're yeah. like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. So yeah, I, I, I tend to, sorry, I tend to agree with Nate just in, in, it sounds like everyone, but, um, it just seems like. It's almost uh, the most like understatement of all time that the Bible is a classic. Like we're talking about a text that is truly unique in every sense of the word. Um, it's it's not like other classics in in almost any way. Like the, it is important to uh, approach it with a literary perspective, but it's the inerrant word of God. It's supernatural. Uh, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Then, like as you read this text things are going to be brought to life. We were talking a few minutes ago about how, oh, I reread this book and I noticed some newer things, right? Or like, I enjoy Pride and Prejudice the second and third time through even more because I saw things I didn't realize. I mean, that is true of the Bible times infinity because the word of God is eternal. It's never going to fade away. I mean, so it just seems silly to uh, group it with the classic. So the more I'm listening to you guys, I'm like, no, it's emphatically not a classic. It's shaped Western <laughs> civilization like a billion times more than any other text that has ever been written. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Mm. Yeah. If the Bible is a God inspired text, and I believe that it has the supernatural power to transform the human heart because of its divinity, mm-hmm. it seems unfair to put uh, Charles Dickens <laughs> next to that. Yeah, poor guy. They're well, different. Well, Karen Swallow Pryor, if you are listening, remember our conversation about how I became a Christian because of reading A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. But anyways. <laughs> you can do both. Yeah. <laughs> so. Just read all of them. Everybody that's listening to this is now thoroughly convinced to read the classics. Many of them probably like ordered some on Libby like while we were sitting here. And so that being said, how do you guys think we can read the classics well? I think that answer differs depending on what you're reading, of course. But um, what do you guys think? If you're going to spend some time with those, how do you do it? I think you have to know thyself. Like you have to know yourself. You have to know what you're into. You have to do a little research. I wouldn't just like pick up Moby Dick and, 
dig in and try to force yourself to enjoy it, right? Like, I just think what Lauren said is so important that you really should enjoy it. And you can be challenged, but I, I just feel like you really got to enjoy the style. And Well, here's a question, um, though. What do you do if you don't enjoy it? Put it down I and mean, choose another one. Yeah, okay. give it a chapter or two. Like, I don't know, but do your research. Like, if you're not a reader, pick a short book, first of all. Pick one that you can, like, actually finish in a reasonable amount of time and feel like you accomplished something. Like, don't don't dive in with, like, crime and punishment and just, I, I don't know, like, you got to think, you, I, I just don't think you should rush into a yeah. book. It's like, you got to date that book for a minute before you pop the question, you know? Can I push back on that a little bit? So I would agree that, you know, if there's a book that's like terrible, don't read it. But sometimes if you think, you know, if there's something that you've heard like, oh, this is supposed to be really good or a lot of people who I respect have recommended this, it can be worth pushing through something for a little longer than a couple chapters, yeah. especially with like Dickens. Because yeah. I found some of his books like, because sometimes he just goes on these like rants describing things and you're like, what is going on? But if you can like get past that and train yourself to like slow down a little bit, you can find amazing richness. Like I read a, it's like a novella by Tolstoy called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And I really enjoyed it. I found it very gripping. But most of it was just describing this guy being like a jerk and his family being jerks. But Russians. The, yeah. Russian literature. <laughs> All jerks. <laughs> but the end was absolutely incredible and just made the whole thing worth it. But yeah. I'd put it down because, oh, this guy's an idiot. Right. I would not have gained. So I don't know exactly what that balance is, but there is a place for maybe if you're already a reader pushing yourself through. If you've never read anything. I think a great analogy is working out. Different. Like I think that like if you're going to work, if you have not worked out for some time, running a marathon is not a great idea for you. So that might be the putting it down yeah, and finding something point. else. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I do think that even though I, you know, at this time don't think I will ever run a marathon in my life. I have no interest. I have, you know, very, you know, in the same way, there is somebody who is like, I'm never going to read Macbeth in my life. You know, in the, if that, if you want to make that equivalence, that doesn't make reading Macbeth less valuable, but I, maybe I'm, I'm not a marathon runner guy. That's just not me right now, but I understand very much the value in running a marathon. I think mm -hmm. I think it's also worthwhile to mention if you're not enjoying the process of reading something that you, I think as Megan, when you were mentioning, like if something has been recommended to you, if people whose opinions you trust say, this is good, you should give it a try, try an audiobook. That's a good call. Like we, we live in an incredible uh, era now where you can access stuff in so many different ways, mm -hmm. you know, especially mm -hmm. if you're just talking about a story in general, let alone like the original text of something, you, there are like audiobooks, movies, abridged versions, like all sorts of different things, which mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. Or read the sparks, read the spark notes first. Yeah. Get like a feel for what's coming at you and then jump back in. Yeah. That's a good call. Like there's not a, there's not a wrong way to read a book. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I think too, yeah. you got to decide what, what you're like, hoping to get out of it because I also feel like a good example of this to use like Shakespeare or Dickens as examples of this. If you're reading for the beauty of a tremendous artist's prose, you want to read the original text. But mm. if you're reading because you want to know what happens in this story, there are many ways to consume that story without slogging your way through an extremely difficult multi hundred year old text. Mm. 
I, I think that sometimes in this conversation of like classic literary text with transcendent merit, that 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 gets conflated with this idea that a text has to be like extremely obscure and complex. Um, and we know that, you know, we've we've kind of criticized cheesy or corny art that is sometimes too didactic or on the nose or, uh, you know, simplistic and cheap and sentimental. Like, I'm not saying that, but I think that there's a, a different path where like somebody like T.S. Eliot, who is just not my style, like, and part of it is I, I simply might not be like intelligent enough. Like that's, this is a, this is just an objective fact that not every human being has the same degree of intelligence. That doesn't mean they're not equally valuable. Right. But like, I just enjoy reading like Langston Hughes poetry way more than T.S. Eliot and Langston mm. Hughes prided himself on being like, I'm, I write poetry for regular people. And I just have so admired that, like mm. somebody like, you know, Tarantino as a, you know, controversial a figure as he is, uh, is a extremely well-respected artist. And he makes stuff that anyone, it's accessible. It doesn't mean it's, I, I don't know, that, that feels like part of the conversation here too. So um, you don't have to try to, I don't, I don't know, man, it's just get annoyed by stuff that gets pretentious and it's automatically valuable because it's kind of complex. Mm. Yeah, we do. We do conflate difficulty with value. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point, and I think that can also roll into a conversation about our own personal identities and what and and our pride. Mm -hmm. As as somebody who was not like other girls in high school, mm -hmm. it was a big deal to me that I liked I like the big crunchy books. No, I'm not like other girls. I don't like the romance books. I mm -hmm. like the I like the big old books. I like Pride and Prejudice. That's real romance. Mm -hmm. And been there. I was insufferable in high school. <laughs> like I don't think that like I I liked being the kind of girl that read the classics because it felt like it it made me different. Mm -hmm. And better. And better, better than other people. Yeah. And it was mm -hmm. just a pride thing. And that's and, and prejudice that, and prejudice, yeah, yeah. Pride and prejudice. <laughs> and that nice. is not something that I like. It would I, not be very sense or sensibility. It would not be sensible. You. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the lag over here in Canada. I'm just, I'm just trying to be part of the the family over there. But ultimately, you still found love and friendship. Nice. <laughs> I guess the point that I'm trying to like dance around here is, I'm at a point in my life now where. Like I, first of all, other girls are pretty great. I have a lot in common with other girls. Um, Thanks. <laughs> but, but also that sort of pride is something that I am working against in my mm -hmm. own heart. Like I, I kind of want to avoid situations where I can do something just to try to make myself look better. Like I don't want to do that. So if right. I'm going to read a classic I don't want to read a classic because it says something about me. Mm. I want to read a classic because it's a it's a good or enjoyable thing to do. You mm -hmm. know, I think going off of what you were saying kind of made me think of something like it does depend on where you are in life, right? Like if for you trying to get through a thousand page, you know, brick is going to be a source of pride, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But it also can depend on what you're doing every day. Like everybody else here has a full time job. I am a full-time mom, which is amazing. And it definitely stretches me in all kinds of ways, but it doesn't stretch me academically. So reading a harder book while the kids are napping is a really nice outlet. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if I was, 
you know, when I was teaching, I honestly, I don't think I was reading the same level of hard stuff that I'm reading now mm-hmm. yeah. because I was using my brain in different ways all day. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that could affect it too. Like if you're in a really stressful season, you know, maybe picking up like Pride and Prejudice or like Emma is my favorite Austin novel and I've read it twice and would totally read it again because it's just fun. In a difficult season, that's a better choice. So mm-hmm. it just depends. I, as a, as an English teacher, I read difficult texts aloud every day that I work. And so I find myself much more drawn to simple audio books during the school year. And then over the summer, when I'm not stressing that area of my brain nearly as much, I find myself drawn to reading difficult books mm-hmm. and giving myself the freedom to read the difficult books yeah. when I'm not teaching them and then reading things that are purely, um, or maybe not purely, but largely relaxing and entertaining uh, at, you know, as a, an entertainment mode, you know, mm-hmm. is like, yeah. like we've all been saying, giving yourself the, the space to not force <laughs> yourself to do something because it's what you're, you know, this is what everyone, when everyone yeah. sees me reading this, I'm going to get cred for doing this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. If we could rewind super quick, if we could just rewind, I want to point out that Megan, uh, without intending to, admitted that her guilty pleasure was Jane Austen, which is just a it's real great, flex. It's great. Real that, baller yeah, move there. Yeah, I'm know. watching SpongeBob SquarePants reruns. <laughs> Megan is like <laughs> indulging. Um, Cody He's playing can Christian we, on light mode. <laughs> Cody, can we discuss the history of children's animation at this point without SpongeBob, though? Oh, no. <laughs> hey. Probably not. Classic. It All is right. classic. It is. Uh, anyway. Um, Can I just share something? We're talking about SpongeBob. I was not allowed to watch that until sixth grade. Wow. Would you like to know why? That explains a lot. Well, first of all, I could tell. You could tell. Thank you. I could tell. I was like, that explains why you like Emma. I was the public schooled one. It was too deep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's because my youngest sister is seven and a half years younger. Because he was rude. No, well, he's because he said the S word stupid and anything oh, that was on yeah. TV had to be appropriate for yeah, yeah, yeah. a four-year-old. Yeah. So that was why. Yeah. Mm. I, I had not about SpongeBob, but I had a similar situation because my brother is so much younger than me that we weren't allowed to watch anything that my brother couldn't watch yes. in the house. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. But, and that's why you're like, I'm watching Barney at yes, the youngest luckily, common denominator. Yes, but luckily I had many friends that, <laughs> that I could go to their houses and watch SpongeBob. Yeah, but yeah. That's good. I mean, you got to be careful because kids are like, sponges they soak things up that is true that is oh true oh my gosh um well i'm actually done, yeah um <laughs> very good honey that, that was a, that was a pity uh canned laugh for sure and rich and rich was rich was sneaking over to friend's house to do bad things like watch spongebob and exactly. i was <laughs> my sneaking over to friend's house for activities is a little different but that's probably for another podcast yeah we'll, we'll edit that part out <laughs> anyway um so guys you can only recommend three classics cody you're first Oh, oh wait, I can't wait, go wait, first. Actually, no, no. Okay, we, all right. Cody's not first. Sorry. No, like, Lauren wants. Lauren doesn't want hers to get stolen. Is that right? Well, no, I have an idea. Oh. I want to go like around the circle three times. Nice. Oh, yeah. oh I'm in. Oh, I'm in I like that. that. I, I like that. that. Okay, then Cody's not first. I just decided that. How about uh, Megan? Wow. So you can give one. Uh, Pride and Prejudice. That was out of left field. I didn't Shocker. expect that one. <laughs> I'm, just that kidding. Really I'm, just, I'm joking. Hey, no repeats. No repeats. Pride and Prejudice off the table. Little Women. Treasure Island. Nice. I'm going to go with, uh, I've got my board here, my draft board. I'm going to take the number one, my number one pick, uh, John Steinbeck's 
sprawling epic, The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. The Lord of the Rings. Tale of Two Cities. The Metamorphosis. Kafka. Mm. The Odyssey. Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. That's a good one. I just read that. It's very good. The Count of Monte Cristo. Anna Karenina. The Joy Luck Club. The Great Gatsby. And uh, for my final pick, I don't care if this is allowed or not, I am going to go with uh, Charlotte's Web. Ooh. One of mine was taken. So I think I'm going to go with The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So everyone's gone around, right? Three times? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. This is a what good What did we uh, miss? So so listen back, scroll back there guys, listeners. You now now you simply must read every text that was suggested <laughs> by all of us. No, but uh I would please. say lame is, but I haven't actually read it. Right. Can we put it in the show notes and by we I mean Nate? Yeah. Sure. But wait, the reason why I don't want to talk about the ones that we missed, Cody, is because what I would really love is you forefront listeners to let us know what we missed. Mm. Yeah. And I'd really love you guys to comment on either Instagram, you can comment on the, leave a little comment under the episode, uh, but we would truly like to engage with you guys on this conversation. So what classics have we not talked about? What aspects of classics have we not uh, hit yet here? And, uh, you know, I think classics would be a great artist circle discussion. So if you're in Rochester, mm-hmm. That's a good idea. come to the artist circle. Maybe we'll talk Richard, about classics I like, then. Yeah. I like what you did, Rich, and I don't want to say another text. Um, going but to anyway? Am, am, no, I'm not. Oh, I'm okay, not. yeah, yeah. Am, I just am I right to assume that you did not mention a certain play by a guy named Arthur that is basically uh, the ligaments that are holding your I very really body like together? Crucible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, <laughs> if no, but I I do not think that uh, I I if I could only read three books for the rest of my life, the Crucible would not be one. So how many sorry, times have you read? Simply Crucible? not true. You already Rich. know That's it not by true. Heart, so. uh, yes, <laughs> he yes. doesn't have to read Cody. it. Cody, it's part of him now. <laughs> no, it's true. I can actually do almost the entire play from memory. Really, you've hidden mm-hmm. the word. I'm not even heart. sure you're joking. No, because each play year, all the parts. no, Don't each year I read. Each year I yeah. read the play three times a day for. You know, I read the same scene yeah. three times a day for like three months at a time. Give us so. a good line. Give us yeah. one good line, Rich. One good line from. Uh, because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that you have hanged. Oh, oh. The best line in the whole play. John Proctor. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh, there's also the good. Uh, mm, there's some good sexy lines that live in my in my head from the Crucible as well. Which whenever the kids, I always choose the you know, I always make myself read it because read the Crucible, guys, it's good. Anyway, um, so the Winona Ryder lines, yes, the Winona yes. lines. Mm-hmm. I'm so confused. We need to move on. Watch man. the Crucible. Go. Watch the movie yeah. version. It's very good. Uh, oh, it's wow. got it's got uh, Daniel Day Lewis, Winona Ryder. Oh, anyway, about the, the witch movie. trials. It is. Yeah, it is. I um, read it also about McCarthyism. It's, it is. Incredible. it's an allegory. Yeah, it's an allegory. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Megan. All right. Well, I'll I have to read it. It's just oh, been no a worries. couple decades. Yeah. Well, well now's not the time. That long. Can I give a closing quote? Sure. That I have. Yeah. Just before you do the final bit. Do it. This is a quote by Marshall Gregory. It's about why stories are awesome. He says Once past the issue of sheer physical survival, human lives are about feeling, believing, and judging. And stories profoundly map themselves onto this agenda of human concerns because at the core of every story is a set of invitations to feel, to believe, 
and to judge as the story dictates. That's why stories are awesome. Read the classics. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. If you'd like to continue this conversation, please do so. We want to hear from you. Uh, reach out if you don't if you don't follow us on socials. That's at Forefront Fest uh, on social media. Uh, you can email us at info at forefrontfestival.com. Keep engaging with excellent art and authentic faith. Until next time.